Um, the problem we see in Tagen's relationships is not that he has multiple partners. That is not the unloving part of him. The unloving part of him is treating partners, singular, plural, like shit. That includes an involuntary asymmetry of rules. This has nothing to do with the exact kind of relationship he leads, whether exclusive or not. This is a question of generally how he treats people. Okay, I think this is a good point for me to talk about the weird way to start this episode. Hello, strangers. How are you? Tired? You don't need to feel called out if that was your answer. See this as a sort of shout-out instead. Welcome to Stargazers, a discussion on identity and representation in Stargate. You are listening to episode 4.2? 4B? I don't want to say 5. We were so well lined up with the episode numbers of SG-1. This is the sequel to episode 4, Emancipation. Uh, two sexist, two racist. <laughs> Where we keep on ranting about episode 4 of the first season of Stargate SG-1 actually called Emancipation. Yes, I know. I couldn't believe it either. If you have listened to the last one, you know that we decided to split it into two parts because we couldn't fit all that is to say about it into a single episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, okay, weird choice. Starting with the second half of a two-parter. Unlike your attitude, you could listen to the other one after this, make it some sort of art project, a brain teaser. Whatever, we don't need labels. Don't let them tell you how to listen to your podcasts. You do you. <laughs> Another thing I said in the last episode is that I would put trigger warnings into this one, and I really tried. What I then realized is that I'd have to put a new trigger warning every couple of minutes. So I decided to do it a bit differently this time. Instead of general trigger warnings in the beginning, and more specific ones with time codes later on, I will give you an explicit trigger warning for this whole episode. There will be lengthy discussions on child abuse, gaslighting, child marriage, rape culture, and repercussions on people affected by them. Please treat this episode like you would the parts of other episodes that I introduce with a beeping signal and a timestamp. In fact, let me do just that. If you are not in a place where you can listen to these topics, or if you simply don't want to, please skip the following one hour. 11 minutes and 30 seconds after the beep. I promise we won't be offended because you didn't listen. Now that this is dealt with, let me throw you right back into the episode where I was just about to tell you about the usage of Mongolian culture in the episode. There is a trope called fantasy counterpart culture, basically describing this scenario. Um... To come up with a new culture that is not based on something existing on our world is really, really hard to do. And if you try to do so, you run the risk of alienating your viewers because they can't identify with what you display at all and they have no connection to that. So what many authors and writers do is they use a culture they know about that exists in our world and they base their fantasy culture on that one. Now what's wild with this one is that they did not choose to base 
a fictional culture on one that exists here. They chose to use a existing culture and display that one as, well, something they came up with that's just really different from what it's supposed to be. And they give a reason for that, uh, the reign of the Gua'uld. But as we said before, that's just a really, really badly written reason. And it does not explain at all most of the differences. It's also just an excuse to villainize them. Like, it's it's not even just, I made a random change, but I made a random change that makes them shit. I want to make clear here that this is not supposed to idealize the historical Mongo- Mongolian culture. Um, the actual Mongols, and I'm talking roughly about 1200 AD here, uh, as well as other Eurasian steppe tribes, did practice gender segregation. That is not something the show came up with. But that segregation was not near to the degree portrayed in this episode. Uh, the Mongols were nomadic people, meaning they were traveling a lot and basically did not have a designated location as their fixed home. Instead, they were living in an area, changing locations for their home place repeatedly. That means that men and women and children and everybody else had to be able to ride well. They had to be able to use a bow for hunting. And if one part of a relationship died, the survivor in the partnership had to carry on and look after the family and its herds. That meant that usually men and women were very capable of doing each other's tasks. The tasks were separated into typically male and typically female things to do, but they were still taught to the others as well. This episode just uses the cheap excuse of the Goa'uld raiding for hosts for changes in culture. And in my opinion, that's just a legitimization for butchering the depiction of the original. Another thing they got right was the polygamy. Mongols were polygynous, meaning... Men could marry multiple women, not the other way around. But only really rich men had multiple wives. The first wife was considered the main wife, but that was only really relevant for legal technicalities. She and her children would inherit more than the other wives, if the husband died. The groom actually did pay the wife's family, as we see in the show. But the reason is that they'd have to compensate them for their loss, not that he would then own the woman. And that's because the working roles and responsibilities of the woman in her family basically makes her indispensable. If a groom could not afford to pay that price, he might kidnap her. That is a thing that could be happening. But that was very, very rare, uh, simply because it might very well lead to a blood feud. And also, he then wouldn't get a dowry. Short interception to point out that dowries were also typical aspects of classically perceived as European culture. Dowries are a very universal phenomenon. Hello, strangers. This is a very dead editing mills. Um, I wanted to correct myself 
on now. So now you have noisy traffic background and bad audio. I'm so, so sorry. Um, I noticed that I said dowries are somewhat universal. And of course, they aren't. I mean, uh, they are an inherent part of the commodification of one gender due to partnership. So what I intended to say was dowries are somewhat universal in a masculinist economy of trade. Yeah, have a great day. Don't die. See you later. And I do think like here they are kind of in Stargate. They are kind of used to point out, look how horrifically sexist that is. And it's like, yeah, okay. But oh, in your culture, that works the same way. In, in Stargate, we don't see a dowry. Dowry, mind you, is not um, the money they pay for. No, we do not specifically see that. That's true. I do think the implication of the marrying off of the daughter was that he would receive, the family of the bride would receive money. But I did not think that was selling. I thought that was meant to be the dowry. Oh, no. The way I saw the depiction in this episode was that uh, the woman basically was owned by the family and they exchanged her for money. Oh, okay. Then never mind. It's weird that that has such similarity to... They, they could have made that a dowry thing. I mean, it would have still tried to be sexist, but... You see? Do you really Maybe. think they would have made the more sensible choice in this episode? <laughs> Never mind. And Lils. <laughs> but uh, talking about the dowry, uh, if the wife had wealthy parents, and I'd argue in our example that would be the case, the dowry would consist of household items, jewelry, livestock, and servants and slaves. Um, and all of those would not be given to the husband, but would stay personal property of the woman. It might be that that would not be given all at one time. Uh, it might take several months or years uh, for her to receive the full dowry. Um, still, that is a lot of worth. And the thing that is to note here, that worth would still have to be surpassed by the cost the husband would have to pay the family. I am not going to go into more detail here because of time reasons. I think the women's role in the Mongolian politics is really fascinating, um, mostly because they had huge influence being part of political rituals and strategically planning weddings and connecting families were a huge part of Mongolian politics. If you want to look more into that, and I highly recommend doing so, I will post two links in the description. First of all, I will link to Women and the Making of the Mongol Empire by Professor Anne F. Broadbridge, who dealt in this book mostly with the female side of the family of Genghis Khan. She is director of the program in Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Chicago, and the book is listed by the Cambridge University Press as part of the Cambridge Studies in Islamic Civilization. Because scientific literature is not always easy to read, and some of you might prefer something shorter, I will also link Women in the Mongol Empire by Mark Cartwright. That's a text on worldhistory.org. 
The link will be in the description. Marvelous. Thank you. Back to you. I would like to continue with Carter and Tagen talking to each other. Um pointing out the positives because they are all lifeline here. Uh Carter is showing some snark in this scene. Uh this is a conversation about Turgen asking Carter about her skills, whether she can weave or cook or clean particularly well. Um, of course, Carter cannot have any hobbies or skills that are associated as stereotypically feminine because that would be weak and she is hashtag strong girl boss. Which is a weird choice. I mean, like, feminine, trade or not, they're all in their, what, 30s? Probably having lived alone, if you're telling me that each and every single member of SG-1 is not capable of fixing up a household, I would argue, what the fuck is wrong with them? So, yeah, I think it is somewhat weird that she does not have a single skill that Turgen would consider effeminate. like. Why can't you fight with knives and sew your own clothing, whatever? Uh, Sam Carter was supposed to be born in the December of 1968, so right now she is actually supposed to be around about 30 years old. Well done. Woo! Um, yeah, this this kind of depiction of a character perceived as a woman who is also supposed to be seen as strong kind of reminds me of the debates within feminism in the 2000s when people asked such intriguing questions as is it sexist to wear lipstick or can you be feminist and shave your legs in hindsight that would have been another great example when i was talking about the clothing choices of women repeat after me the state of your body hair is not sexist or feminist whether you had an actual free-of-consequence choice in it, is. So, when Carter chooses to pick up cooking, great. If she doesn't, also great. If we only get one person perceived as a woman who actually gets to be a person, and then we make her as assimilated to masculinist culture in the military as we can, we do imply that Sam Carter's badassery would be hindered by having any traits being perceived as feminine. Except for, of course, being pretty. Because how would she have gotten the role if she weren't? As much as I love her snark, she gives in in this conversation with Turgon, trying to appease him. In my opinion, that is not exactly in character. Again, yes, being snarky in a position of inferiority is dangerous, but I think, again, defiant silence would have been more in character for her. I mean, she's staring down O'Neill and his shitty commentary all the fucking time. Why isn't she doing that here? That can also be perceived by Turgen as obedience, at least when she still abides by his orders 
Yeah, the thing that annoyed me most in that scene was not her silence. It's the way she looked. Yeah, and she is not silent. She literally asks him what he would like of her. Oh yeah, you're right. So, yeah. And thing is, I talked about how it annoys me that she looks scared in the first scene. I think one of the characteristics of the badass in distress trope would be that it takes some time to break them when in captivity. They do not look scared immediately. They snark first and then they are threatened with something that is particularly bad for them as a person. That is not how Carter's arc in captivity looks. She is first scared, and then there's a short moment of snark, which we just discussed, and then she's more scared again. So, again, I'm seeing more of the damsel thing here. Uh, Turgon tells her that he will teach her how to be a woman. Uh, at this point, <laughs> I am deeply intrigued by what is his perception of gender? How does he construct it? Because surely there is a nature versus nurture problem here if he considers her not to be a real woman right now because she does not have his ascribed stereotype characteristics of what it means to be feminine. So is he in denial of trans people? I mean, obviously he is. I guess so. Yeah, exactly. Um, is she a real woman for him right now? If not, how does he align her lack of womanly qualities with her inherent natural predisposition to the whole cooking and cleaning and whatever shit? Like, okay, but this is this is literally me debating the plausibility of sexism, which is not there, so... Yeah, never mind. It's hard to write that plausibly. Mm. Yeah. So, after this short conversation, uh, Carter is put on kitchen duty. <laughs> she literally said she was a warrior. And you give her a knife? <laughs> I mean, I knew sexists are dumb, but this is some next level shit. I mean, yeah, I actually do think that's in character because because she is a woman, um, he inherently assumes her to be weak, no matter what she says about that. Yeah, he is in character and he definitely underestimates her due to her gender, but still I was sitting there and being like, oh my... I like the women defending women thing. I fucking hate the white savior thing. We could have also just turn dynamics around here we could have decided that the women in this camp now unite against their oppression and help carter in fleeing or just i don't know starting a revolution which for once could not be carter's idea not a choice we're making here this is white liberal feminism at its worst and we will see more of that later one of the rare cases where feminism is not something positive and that is only because this feminism is exclusionary Bonus points for the Gaslighty villain. I like Gaslighty villains. I think that is excellent to make us feel more unnerved by their behaviors. Uh, because I believe gaslighting is a massive 
problem harmful actions have in general. What I do not like is that our gaslighty villain is neither likable nor relatable. Because usually people who use gaslighting are just that, people. And we do relate to them to some extent. And sometimes we even do hold affections for them to some extent. And that is one of the reasons I don't like perpetrator-exclusive pictures of humanity. Or story writing. Exactly. Because those narratives undermine the fact that wolves do not usually disguise themselves in wolf skin, but in that of sheep. In... Either the conversation Carter just had when she was asked about her skills or after defying autism, I'm not sure. Carter is threatened by Turgan with the punishment of other women because of her behaviors. That is the that is part of the gaslighting I'm talking about, obviously. So here we have rape culture and character. Enforcing compliance from one person by threatening to harm another. But we do not really reflect on how any hurt he inflicts on Naya in this case is not Carter's fault, but his. I I mean, I know that is probably an implicit premise here. And it is a moral struggle Carter is living through. But I would have liked to point that out and to reflect more on survivor's guilt instead of the damsel in distress arc. What I do not like about how this entire arc is treated is that this is talking about victimhood in very passive terms and not about what it actually means to survive this kind of oppressor. There is one voice Nayas, which I think actually depicts quite well what gaslighty relationships can cause in the mind of a survivor. A bit earlier, I called Naya compliant to this whole thing, and that it was a deliberately cynical choice of words. I am very aware that there is much more to her character and to her situation than just blind compliance, specifically because of her toxic relationship with Turgan and his gaslighting. I am counting on you to go into more detail about this. I will. Um, there are two specific quotations of Naya's that really struck me as important. One of them is, My father is a good man. He never beats a woman unless she deserves it. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking about. This shit is breaking me. Um, this is a very possible reaction of a traumatized individual. Survivors do blame themselves, not least because it gives one an illusion of agency, which can be preferable to acknowledging the impotence one has been subjected to during acts of violence or years of oppression. It is also quite normal for any human being. If they hear something often enough, they will believe it. We all do that. We are all socialized into our beliefs. And just 
because primary socialization, the age from like zero to three, does that particularly strongly. That doesn't mean that when we are grown up, we do not still take other people's opinions and internalize them, make them our own unwillingly and unwittingly. Um, for Naya, this is particularly bad because this is her father. She has lived with those opinions all her life. She has been treated like this all her life. All her life, disobedience was immoral and violence against her was justified if she disobeyed. So it is perfectly in character for her to have that reaction. And that cannot and should not be held against her. What I do not like about this scene is that we never have a conversation about this statement. It unnerves me that Carter never takes the time to at least carefully nudge against those beliefs. She she does not really talk to Naya about her situation. Carter does talk about her father in a negative way, but we do not reflect on Naya's position here. And I think that is the more important part to give Naya agency to talk to her about her sense of self-worth. I will go further into the implications of gaslighting and victim blaming here. Carter and Naya do talk about the position of people perceived as women in the Tugai tribe. And Naya says, I'm not free to choose. And this, in my opinion, should be the focus of the entire episode. This is, I mean, if you're going to write this horrifically racist and sexist plot, then this should be the point. The point should be, let us talk about consent and the importance of it and how consent is the relevant context for every action and every style of clothing and every way of behaving that is a topic here. This should be the relevant question this entire episode revolves around. We should not hear so much about the positions of the SG-1 team or of Mughal or Abu or Turgan. We should hear the voices of the Shabadai and Tugai women and how they feel about veiling, about how they're treated by the men in their societies, about what they want, about agency they can get, about agency they are denied, about mistreatments that are happening. And this is never a topic in this entire episode, except for those two statements, except for talking about Naya, who has internalized the violent and cruel values of her father, and Naya openly acknowledging that she is not free to choose. This is everything we get. What you just said is a huge part of why I want to do the podcast the way we are doing it. Um, we are criticizing a lot of things that we see in the show. But the main part that I want to keep in mind 
not only for us, but for the listeners as well, is that this is not just picking apart what has been done. This is supposed to make people think about how can we do things better. And a great example for this is thinking about whose voices we should amplify when writing these stories. I would also like to add that this would have not only been the morally more acceptable episode, it's also the more interesting one. The voices we hear in this are heard all the time. The the positions on on perpetrators and how to deal with offenses have been repeated so many times. And we could get to see that survivors are not a monolith here. We could be talking about what reparations could look like and what different people are expecting to change in the society. Instead, we are confronted with some army randos saying, oh, your sexist backwards ways are sexist and backwards. And we are confronted with Mughal saying, well, old laws are hard to be changed. And we are confronted with Targan being rape culture on legs. That's it. We don't get nuanced positions. The most nuanced position we get is from Tilk, and we get those two lines from Naya, and that is it. And it's not like we are going to reflect on those positions very well. Quite the contrary. Let me tell you about Carter's response. When Naya says, I'm not free to choose, Carter answers, you will never be until one of you says no. Oh no, I forgot about that bit. <laughs> yep. This, in my opinion, is the worst quote the entire episode has to offer. And I'm quite convinced it is up there with the worst quotes the entire series has to offer. It, it doesn't get much worse than this. Carter's statement is the superlative of what Jackson does for the entire episode. It is speaking from a position of privilege and from that position giving advice, which is garbage if you do not have the privilege that enables you to behave the way the advice suggests. Jackson suggests Carter will be fine if she will abide by the customs. Carter rightfully points out that the customs he refers to are what oppresses her. Carter says, Naya can be free if only she says no. What Carter forgets here is that she has a group of army soldiers searching for her in this situation. She is in this situation for like, what, two nights, if at all? Naya has been in this situation her whole life. There is no knight in shining armor coming for her. Even after the soldiers save Carter, it is ironically debated whether to save Naya at all, let alone any other two-guy woman. Carter can only say that. Carter can only suggest this amount of defiance. Carter can only suggest that no will free Naya because... Carter will be freed by someone else. You cannot do this alone. And even if Carter was not freed by her group, she still has extensive combative training and survival training. Naya does not have the same. Yes, and 
There are many things I hate about this dialogue, particularly that this is one survivor of an abusive situation talking to another. This is, this is victim blaming from the inside. I think this tells us a lot about the privilege of the writer of this episode. And I am explicitly not saying this to shit on the writer, um, but to pick up again on what I said before, this is what we need to be aware of when we are creating stories. We need to be aware of our privileges and we need to, if we write about people who do not have the same privileges, um, try and see their perspective of the situations they are in and understand that they, in all probability, do not have the same means to react to those situations. When I started this bit, I had another point in mind that I apparently simply forgot while talking. Hello, ADHD. Let me edit now. If you write about a group of people, whether they are affected by traumatic events, part of an ethnic minority, neurodiverse, part of the LGBTQIA community, make sure you don't just make up what you think their perspective might be. Talk to people who are actually part of that group, and if you have any chance to do that, elevate their voices. But also keep in mind, when doing so, no group of people is a monolith. Someone telling you about their perspective does not make them a representative for everybody with similar experiences. People are people, and they have different opinions. In a short excurs on abusive relationships in general, I would like to point out that I do think I understand how the writer of this episode came to giving Carter this line. I think the idea here is that when you are in this type of relationship, when somebody is harming you like that, or when you are so gaslit, you cannot differentiate between your own positions and the ones of your perpetrator. You cannot be saved from the outside alone. It is not enough for knights in shining armor to crash in there and free you. They will never manage to anyways, because you would likely resist. However, the insensitivity of Carter's statement implies that, one, it is enough for you to realize that you want to save yourself. That is all you need. Free your psyche from your abuser's opinions and you will be free to go, which is just not the case. There are more restrictions than the remnants of psychological abuse. And two, to expect no less of someone who has suffered through this for their entire life to be able to free themselves from the internalized positions of their oppressor completely on their own, that is a tremendous task to ask of someone, especially if they're still in the situation of oppression. Carter speaks out of the position of someone who is in a, an abusive relation for a very short time and has a social net coming for her. Her advice for defiance is, especially in the phrasing she uses, plain dumb and worse than Jackson's, we'll be fine if we adapt. This is girl boss feminism and white liberal feminism at its worst. This is neglecting how struggles can look differently for different people in different contexts. 
And as a result, this statement, through its insensitivity, is, instead of pointing to the internal struggles of a survivor, solidifying victim-blaming. Pointing to the more rosy sides of things, casual arson. <laughs> In an attempt of Carter to cause a diversion, um, I think to give Naya an opportunity to free herself. Yes. Um, Carter just lights up a tent. I, I found that funny. Uh, I think it was somewhat creative. I still think it was dumb to put her on kitchen duty. Um, and I'm really clinging to the women saving women thing over here because this is a shit show. And I also, I mean, it it tastes like bile to point to Carter saving Naya as something positive here. And I'm only just realizing this after the third time of reading my notes because, of course, this is solidifying her point, isn't it? This is, don't victimize yourself and you will be free. Let me show you how to do it. And hallelujah, it works. To be fair, that backfires. That's true. It leads to the stoning of Naya. It leads to the second damsel in distress arc, yes. Which, I mean, yeah, that points to the difference of means different people in situations of oppression have. Yeah. But it still is not giving Naya any agency. We are still not talking about the finer consequences of gaslighting and surviving. We are not really going into the interesting and valuable conversations we could have here. I'm not even sure we are supposed to give a shit about the other women at the Tugai tribe. Like, we go back for Naya at some point... But the only person Carter tries to save is Naya. The rest is kind of fucking unimportant. Carter is not working within the law here. So one might argue she could do that for everyone else too. Or she could at least try. She doesn't. The only relevant person here other than Carter is Naya, who is surprisingly perceived as white. She doesn't even talk to the other women to find out if they are in similarly bad situations. Which again, no benefits of the doubt here. I'm pretty sure they are. The episode at least heavily implies it. So, of course, Carter does not save herself. Casual weapon trading does. O'Neill is, of course, the one who has the idea to give Turgon a firearm with, like, five bullets to trade Carter easily without arming a psychopath to the teeth. Weird mistake O'Neill makes there. He is stating there are only five bullets left in the clip. He is in the military. He should be aware that he is talking about a magazine. Magazine is what feeds the gun. Clip is what feeds the magazine. So, wrong line. Interesting. Yeah, I have no idea about weapons, to be honest. Um, We get to what I would coin the second shittiest line of the episode. It's rendered by O'Neill, which is not very surprising, given the general context and vibe of the characters but kind of surprising given how many horrible citations we have at this point. I mean, I I could make a vision board of victim-blaming, demoralization, and general dumb fuckery at this point. I do not have the exact quote in my notes. I'm going to check on that for a minute, second. I am searching for it. Uh, we have a 
cut to the woods where Carter and the team are reunited and Carter is like, oh, what a relief. I've never been so happy to see you guys. And O'Neill answers, oh, sure you have. Remember that time on P3X595? Carter starts to lose her smile. You drank that stuff and that made you take off. <clears throat> you won't get into that now. And isn't that funny? Pointing out when people are shit-faced and undressing, especially in the context of how they got almost got raped today. Ha 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 ha, great times indeed. <sighs> so many bullets they didn't dodge but run straight into in this one. I dearly love the trope of the noodle incident. I mean, so much potential for comedy and for character building and world building and implying a world deeper than the one we are seeing. Talking about scenarios that happened that will not be disclosed. And the name-giving noodle incident is such a great example for a way to handle this in a very clean way. It's from Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, Calvin saying, All I can say is, this year Santa had better bring me everything on my list. I've been extremely good all year. And Hobbes replies, What about the noodle incident? Calvin, No one can prove I did that. It tells you nothing. It is innocent. It is intriguing. It is fun. Instead, we use the trope to sexualize Carter and to repeatedly go into the rape culture thing. And isn't that intriguing and fun? Yuck. Last but not least, we are enlightened as to Abu's motives. I was about to say, Carter's like, what the fuck was going on with that dude? She's not. She's very understanding. To quote her, she says, I don't blame you for what Abu did. I don't blame him either now, which, weird move. You... You should. That was very much his decision. I remember now watching the episode. I was thinking, it is so wild to me how an episode can at the same time criticize a whole group of people for being sexist and then writing a character so sexist. Like, I am... The, the only reason I can think of for her to be so understanding is because she is the female character who is so empathetic and understanding and emotionally open when she has all the reasons not to be. I think that confuses empathy with apologetic behavior. Yes. I I didn't want to say that she was acting empathetic. Um, that's what she's supposed to be. Like, that's why they wrote her like that. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to depict. And I think that is a common mistake. When when people think about the the inclusivity towards perpetrators, what they think that means is that you just accept and repressively tolerate horrifying behaviors. Just because I understand someone's motives does not mean I have to 
agree with their actions. An explanation is not an apology or a legitimization at that. And I think while Abu's behavior is easily explained, it should not be easily excused. But yeah, Mughal says he's suffering the madness as I did when I was young. And when Carter frowns in confusion, Daniel translates it to, it's what they call love. Because Carter is a scientist, but she can't be the smartest one in the room. Yeah, that definitely escapes her understanding. Because why the fuck not? And this to me reads as boys will be boys. You know, when I was young and I was full of teenage hormonal cocktails, I would have abducted people too in order to be with what I consider the love of my life, TM. And so does Abu, naturally, because that's what we are. Boys will be boys. Who can blame them? I just wanted to point out that in this situation, not even Carter can blame him. And I phrased her as being the victim, which Lil's rightfully corrected. Um... I am going to say not even the person affected can, apparently. I think this is a good opportunity for you to explain why the use of the word victim can be problematic. Um, first of all, I would like to point out that I am right now not sure whether I have used the word victim in the description of characters in this episode. If so, please consider this my revoking of that vocabulary. And yes, I would like to talk about survivors or people affected. The term victim implies complete passivity. And I think that's problematic on multiple dimensions. First of, while being oppressed and treated abusively, oftentimes can result in a position of lack of power that does not make one a mere object of the treatment of others. And I think as victimhood is a very passively connotated term, it adds to the perception as an object of a person. That is why I do not like to use that term. Other reasons are that, as we have talked about, in the right environment and with assistance, people affected can regain agency. And as we have also talked about, that can only be achieved by also perceiving oneself as a subject, not an object of the situation. One needs to be able to regard oneself as a person and not as a mere passive object to even regain that step. So I don't like speaking of people as victims because I think it forces them to stay victims. Oh, I just, I wanted to talk about the permanence of the word as well, but I saw it in a different light um, because I just realized that the term 
of victimhood always stands in the context of the act and thus could be used in a way that the person affected is a victim in the situation but after the situation has ended is outside of that situation and thus not affected anymore um i think the usage of the term victim either binds them permanently to the situation or removes their life after the violation from the situation from the time it was happening whereas the phrasing affected people includes the effect the violation can have on everything happening afterwards i am very nitpicky when we are talking about this subject oh yeah please i do agree that the stasis of the term victim is a problem i would argue the term survivor is also static in that sense you are after the situation and you remain a survivor forever so that could be a critique you could point out for that term as well however i do not think the survivor term is problematic i but i argue that the term survivor in itself has no negative connotation whereas victim is very much a often negatively used term i think the negativity from the term victim stems from its passivity and i think survivor avoids some of the pitfalls of the term victim because it points to the person and not what the person has lived through in a sense that gives them more agency i think the lack of agency is the fundamental problem of the term victim and i would like to add that we can edit that out because i don't think that is what you meant and you kind of revoked that statement afterwards but it is important to me to point out that you are not not affected anymore after the incident no that's what i said okay you are affected after yeah. the in- that's what i said that is what you said in the second Okay, then I probably misspoke in the first one because that is exactly what what that Yeah, absolutely. That that is what I meant. That is why I like the term affected that I didn't think of before because the affection stays or ca- can stay. Can, exactly. Um I have I no I, idea how to how to edit this this bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is complicated. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. I think I like I like the term affected because of its neutrality because it covers every state you are in. You you do remain an affected person, but what affected means will probably and hopefully change over time. Yeah. And that means however you are handling your situation and however your recovery is going there is no labeling of that in the sense that victimhood does it 
whether the state of affection means that you consider yourself currently fully recovered or whether the state of affection means that this has for now changed you in a way this is difficult to say no matter the intensity of affection you feel and no matter what point in your life you're in and whether you consider the point you're at to be good for you or bad for you. Being affected covers all of that. And it does not define whether or how much the violation defines who you are now. Yeah. A small note for the listeners out there. I think I'm going to keep most of this discussion in the episode. This is a great display for how difficult some of these topics can be to talk about and how each of us can lack in perspective or sensitivity to any of these subjects. I like this opportunity to learn more about the topics and to reflect on my way of talking about them. And I appreciate the input I have through Lils on these things. I would also like to hear your voices and your opinions, um, whether you are affected or not. What are the things you come up with when you reflect on these topics? And what are insights you might be able to share with us if you at all feel comfortable sharing those things i would love to hear about them so we can refine our way of thinking and talking about these things even more yes i would like to add that whether affected or not affected people are not monoliths and should you ever feel that our vocabulary or the points we make are inappropriate for a subject, do not hesitate to contact us. Every single of your points will be taken into consideration and valued. And I do hope we give you all the impression that we will treat your opinions with consideration and kindness. And that we do not take these topics lightly and just talking and just talk about them because they are a way for us to pass some time. Uh, deep thought goes into those, and they are important to both of us. Yes, I would like to move forward to Naya's damsel in distress arc. Yes, please. Um. We are talking about the forced marriage that is planned for her. And I would like to point out that we see here a linkage of veiling and forced marriage. There is a monolithic antagonizing, again, of cultural symbolism linked to Islam. I do think this is undermining agency of anyone who chooses to wear a niqab or 
any other form of covering that is. However, Carter points out that they should free Naya, which again, why do we only care about her? Why is everyone else unimportant? If we acknowledge that Naya's situation is unacceptable, then why are we never trying to figure out a solution for other two guy people perceived as women? They never get a voice. We never even try to figure out what they want. Um, surely, if this is wrong for Naya, it would be inappropriate to just assume that everyone else is fine with their situation. To make a point, Carter quotes De oppresso liber. Yes, my Latin sucks. Um, which means as much as freedom from oppressors, freeing people from oppression, whatever. Um, that is the motto of the special forces. That is a somewhat questionable motto because the question lies in who gets to define who is an oppressor. And he, yes, Naya has pretty much stated she is being oppressed, but Again, we are not really confronted with a diversity of opinions of people affected. And now we um, skip to Jackson again, because he has a brilliant answer to <laughs> Carter's quote. Do we have the right to interfere with their customs or reinterpret their laws? I find that quite interesting, because either he is saying... If Tuggan would not have traded for Carter, Carter would still be in that camp. Or that Carter is worth breaking the law of the two guy or interfering with their customs, but Naya isn't. So what's the take here? The westernized woman is more worthy? Or is the take, ah, no human really is worthy of that. I mean, if you're being oppressed and that's kind of how things go here, then you just gotta live with that. Because repressive tolerance is a great excuse to just not do anything at all. So, so many of these decisions come down to, and I'll phrase this very, very kindly, unlucky writing choices. Oh, that is a very generous interpretation. <laughs> because... I think what they were trying to include in this episode, which is a valid thing to include and a question that needs to be asked in a different context, how much is the Air Force allowed to interfere with different cultures and laws? But as you pointed out quite rightly, the situation he chooses to point this out is just... It's just the wrong situation, man. It's just not a good timing. I also do think it's kind of the wrong question to ask. Um, to interfere with their customs, I dislike this because it assumes that there is a linkage between general traditions valued in the two-guy culture. Um, and oppression of women. And I think this suggests that you cannot have one without the other. 
I would argue that is not necessarily the case. Just like you can have veiling without oppressing people,、um, and I wish that was a point we would reflect on.、Um, I would also argue it is absolutely not inadequate to criticize laws that seem unjust and harm people. And I especially believe that you can act against. Laws in any society, especially if their consequences threaten something fundamental and irreversible, like death. To what extent、um, do you? I mean, yeah, sure. Those laws need to be questioned, and it would be preferable for them to talk to the people in the position to change those laws. Uh, with the goal, well, to do just that,、um, but talking might not do it. Then, of course, they can intervene. That opens up the question: What is their obligation to do? How far should they be obligated to go to avoid laws like things punishable by death? And how would you apply those interventions regarding different countries on Earth if they have laws? That are suppressing groups of people, and might include punishing by death. I do see the question that is raised here in the sense of how much interventionalism is justifiable by unjust laws, and I would argue there is a difference in between deliberate warfare against a sovereign nation in order. To, for example, democratize them, and fighting for liberating people or helping people to liberate themselves, who have voiced being oppressed, whether that necessarily should involve military means, when there is no other option, is a difficult question. I cannot answer here. What I'm saying is that they are not even trying to do so diplomatically. Oh yeah, that's absolutely a fair critique. And while I agree that this question for military interventions is particularly difficult, there is such a thing as civic disobedience, even when you are in foreign. Civilizations, and yet not every civilization has a law that allows you that. That's absolutely true.、Um, but I'm not speaking from a point of lawfulness here, but from a point of ethics. And I would argue that civic disobedience, to some point, would be a duty here. That is obviously difficult if you are in the role of the military, because you are in an official role which might lead to combat.、Um, but what happens here is nothing at all, and that is my problem.、Mm-hmm. There, there is yeah, we are saving Naya with the laws that are in place, but that's it. We do not even question what to do about the rest of this situation. Every other two guy is never. Even considered in a single thought, and that is a fundamental issue. 
and to link that to cultural respect as Jackson does here uh, in my opinion <laughs> is vastly inappropriate and also derogatory towards Tugai tradition in general because you just assume that the Tugai tribe consists of nothing but oppression and yeah Stargate does definitely construct them as that but if you consider actual existing cultures of any kind no culture exists of oppression only we all have meaningful symbols and traditions that are not linked to mistreating humans there there is no culture that is basically lord voldemort and yeah. this is what's construed here and i think Jackson's question is simply the wrong question to ask. So Jackson is the epitome of repressive tolerance here. I have referred to Henri Marcus, I think. Um, I will link the name in the book in the doobly-doo. Um, in English? Yes. I'm sorry, I sent Punk a French link. That was a bit stupid of me. Um... To quote him, your passivity serves only to place you in the ranks of the oppressors. Jackson's plea for inaction makes him complicit with the oppressors, with Turgon. He is opting for not interfering with Turgon's actions. Or at least he is suggesting that for the entire rest of the episode, and I am fed up with him. I just wanted to say I am not sure I would interpret this specific quote as a call for inaction. Uh, I think there is fair enough reason to see this as a question. Um, he just honestly wanted an answer to. But fair enough, the rest of the episode, everything he does and everything he says points in this specific direction. So yeah, I get your point. I mean, that is a question for interpretation. The saddest thing about is this, that this still ends with white saviorism. Technically, Jackson's idea enables Carter's end fight because he suggests fighting Turgon for Naya within the confines of the old law. Which makes no sense. These people are displayed both as very knowledgeable about their own laws and very used to thinking about them and using them for their goals. The fact that one of the outsiders has to notch them in the direction of even looking into these does not make sense from a character point of view, from a story point of view. It's just nonsensical. Exactly. If someone comes to that conclusion, which, to be fair, is a very diplomatic solution, it should be Mughal. So we have Carter's epic end fight, which is great. Four episodes in, we finally get a fighting scene. That is good. Um, as Punk pointed out in his very sassy summary, Carter wins the fight and to the shame of our villain, she spares his life. Very kind of her. We forget about the two guy women because who the fuck cares? Naya is saved and united with her weirdly obsessed Abu. Daniel wishes for him and Naya 
that they get many years of happiness and many sons too. Carter elbows him and he adds, and daughters, which is... Another really weird choice. Yeah, I mean, was I, I assume that was supposed to be a comedic break? No, I don't think this is supposed to be a comedic break. I think this is supposed to be Jackson staying in the role of a diplomat talking in a way appropriate for the culture he's talking to. Whereas Carter basically makes him include a phrase that is more associated with their or our culture, which he would not have done without Carter's very physical request. Yeah, all right. I can kind of see that. Given that he gave the diplomatic solution, kind of feel like he could have known that. But whatever, whatever. I'm I'm fed up with this character today, sorry. Yeah. To end this really awesome and nuanced episode, <laughs> we... Imagine myself raising my eyebrow again. We will just end on... The happy, happy ending scene, which is that Mughal revises the old laws, finally. Remember, those weren't breakable for ages, um, but our white liberal saviors just ran in and therefore now we can break them all, or at least the most important one. Because now veiling is not mandatory for women anymore and they are liberated and free to show their faces which would be fine if not if this scene would end with varying women making different decisions some letting go of their veil some staying with it if we had some kind of reflection about how the problem is not the veil in itself, but the question of whether it is a choice. And to reflect very much that wearing a veil can be an empowered choice and there are people who make it. And there is nothing wrong with that and there is nothing better or worse about that than Carter's choice of not doing so then this would be a great scene. What actually happens is that just every woman loses her veil and everyone looks super happy and excited about this because white liberal girl boss feminism rocked the day and saved them all. We have white saviorism. We have antagonizing veils. We have the irrelevance of choice because that is not what we are laying emphasis on here. The emphasis is not on choosing whether to wear a veil or not. The emphasis is on, hey, no more veils. We never get to know a single perspective on a Shabbatai woman on whether they want to wear a veil or not. Not a single person there ever makes a statement on that at all. Um, again, the Tagai are completely forgotten. Like, apparently veiling is still mandatory there. Probably. Apparently there are a lot more other oppressive structures and that is just well yeah but Naya is here and Abu loves her and that's what matters rest is completely ignored we have a monolith because 
every woman of the Shabbatai makes the same decision, and the white saviors cause the change of law. They even explicitly say the change of law happens in honor of Carter. Yes, which is super weird. Again, we have this individualist hero arc. There is no reference to Naya standing up for herself too because she makes an attempt to flee, for example. Um, actually, she's the only one who actually makes important points when it comes to this. And she would have been a way better choice for a liberator if you have to choose one single liberator. And I think there still would be the problem of her perceived whiteness still. And I generally do not think it is a great idea to have one single heroine or hero to purport change because that is a group effort. And this is not about empowering one single individual. This is about an entire group of people taking agency. And yeah, of course, last but not least, we have uh, the perceived whiteness of womanhood and victimhood in this entire episode. And yeah, just a lack of diversity of voices. This entire shit show was so hard to watch. And I'm looking forward to coming episodes because they can only be better. I, I can tell you that there is one coming up in the not-too-distant future that I distinctly remember as one of my favorite episodes in the early arc. Yay! I'm looking forward to... It's not the next one. <laughs> my face is falling. Uh, still, um, I'm looking forward to shit being less shit. I'm sorry. I, I know this is not really good for a podcast to specifically choose a show and then hate on it obnoxiously but i don't know what else i'm supposed to give you today i love tialk everything else was fucking shit sorry i'm still optimistic regarding the development of the show and i do have the patience to wait for this development to come i do look forward to seeing where this is going but I must admit that this episode somewhat put a dent into my hopes. That's fair. The episode ended with a fun one-liner from Tialg. And whereas our episode has been going for quite a while now, I too want to end on something more uplifting, I think. Maybe, probably, possibly. Um, Carter and Jackson are talking about the anesthetic that they are bringing to Earth. And Jackson states that somebody else will get credit because nobody can know where it came from. That gives us the information that the Stargate program is probably a secret and that space travel and the way they are using it is probably going to stay a secret. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that is um, ambiguous to me. Because I generally am not that fond of highly secretive acting of military even if authorized by democratic governments i think checks and balances are important and uh, the fourth power i do not know how to say that in english uh, the media is an important check and balance for other powers and that can only be lacking if things are getting swept under the rug it also leaves more options for corruption and general lack of lawfulness 
on the other hand, I do believe we have had an illustration of why it can be dangerous for the civilizations we encounter to be public knowledge. On the other hand, the only people so far who have endangered set civilizations are the military, who now know about them anyways. So now maybe I think it would be smarter to have this be public knowledge so that there would be an incentive not to nuke entire people. <laughs> And do you have any theories on how this show is going to handle the topic of information being given to the public or not? Yeah, you should have never told me who finances this. Um, if I didn't know who finances this, I would say that this is probably becoming one interesting arc of moral ambiguity, which ends up with the realization that transparency is always warranted, or at least mostly warranted, and that it is necessary to have people be aware of the missions their executive is conducting. Given that I know that this series is in part financed by the US Army, I'm going to assume that maybe some information is going to be leaked and that is going to be a threat to the, uh, to the civilization about which information is leaked. And then the army swoops in and saves them because white saviorism is definitely not going away for a while. And the lesson learned will be when the military says to shut up about something, you shut up about it because it's dangerous. Am I too negative? No, um, I was curious about your thoughts and um, I am curious to find out how you will react once we deal with those topics. I am very intrigued. And I would gladly be proven wrong. Do you have any more points to make? No. I, I ranted out. Strangers, thanks for listening. Look us up. We have a website. You know the stuff. Bye. Goodbye, strangers.